Hello! Hey guys, it's Arden Cho. Hey, I'm Holland Roden. Hello, this is Ian Bowen. Hey you guys, this is Melissa Poncio. Hi, I'm Lyndon Ashby. Hi, I'm Dylan Sparberry. This is Megan Tandy. This is Tyler Posey, and you are listening to Not Another... Not Another... Not Another... This is Not Another Team Wolf Podcast. Yes, it is! Oh! Woo! Hey, this is Jeff Davis. You're listening to Not Another Teen Wolf Podcast, my favorite podcast in the world. Well, you're so gorgeous, I like you. Oh, you're so gorgeous, I like you. Camera's rolling. You're looking good from every view. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Not Another Teen Wolf Podcast, episode 101. My name is Karen, and today I'm joined by Danya. Hi, Danya. Hi. Natalie is not with us today because she is traveling, so two of us are going to discuss Season 5, Episode 4, Condition Terminal. And to get in touch with us, you can reach us on our Twitter at NATWpodcast, our email, which is NATWpodcast at gmail.com, our Tumblr, which is noneanotherteamwolfpodcast.com, or our Instagram, which is NATWpodcast. And let's just jump right into the quotes. There are a couple pretty good ones this episode. Danya, why don't you go first? Uh, so my favorite one was when Mason and Liam are about to go to this new pop-up club cinema. And Mason is kind of like explaining why he needs Liam there and goes, and considering the state of my love life, I need a wingman, co-pilot and a really hot flight attendant. Uh, which I love that line, but I also loved Liam's response, which was, I'm definitely not your hot flight attendant. <laughs> I don't know, Liam. I think you make a good hot flight attendant. I don't know, Karen. Be careful. That's a really, really young boy. <laughs> You're talking about that. That's fine. You know, he's a good looking guy. It's fine. It's not that weird. Oh, be quiet. <laughs> They're friends. It works for them. It totally works for them. Okay. My hot flight attendant of choice would be Deputy Parrish. Um, and my quote is when Lydia has the lighter and she basically wants to try to light him on fire. And he goes, this is sounding less like a magic trick and more like a salt. Uh, <laughs> which is probably accurate because she did burn his hand, although he walked away unscathed. Yes, he did, except for a little bit of ash on his palm. But, you know, I'd take that if someone was trying to burn my hand. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's jump right into Parrish's abilities, because um, I'm not sure we necessarily learned anything new. We knew he was immune to fire before, Mm -hmm. but the interesting part about this is if he doesn't think about it, if he concentrates on something else... It doesn't bother him. It's it's when he was focusing on it that it actually did hurt. So there's a little bit of, like, he sort of has to transform, I guess. His eyes maybe have to glow or something. He has to kind of turn that ability on for it to work. Yeah, which was really, really interesting. I think it may be because he's not in full control of his powers yet. So he doesn't know how to kind of compartmentalize them and, and figure out how to draw on them. Um, so I guess it was Lydia's way of trying to like push him in one direction or another, but it was very, very interesting that he kind of had to drift off into his own head a little bit and not particularly think about anything at all in order to 
activate them. Um, yeah, and the whole the whole kind of walking with people to the nematon thing was kind of a little creepy. Yeah, just a little bit. Before we get to that, I just want to quickly touch on the fact that he was playing with cards, like, through this sort of interspersed scene, and we see him flipping the Queen of Hearts, and it looks so much like Lydia, and obviously that was on purpose. Oh, yeah. But... I. Go ahead. I definitely believe that was intentional. Yeah. That was definitely intentional. Yeah. I mean, it, it looked like her. There's no question about it. But I just thought that was really cool. What was kind of weird was that one had a burnt face. And, you know, that just sort of feels like foreshadowing to me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a little bit worried about Lydia. Uh, most especially because uh, the, the person that he was carrying in his kind of dream sequence had really long hair. I mean, I don't necessarily think that that was Lydia, though we didn't really get a good look at uh, the person's face to kind of figure out one way or the other. But yeah, I'm a little bit worried for Lydia. Oh, yeah, I'm definitely worried for Lydia. I didn't really think that was Lydia in his arms, though. Um, I was trying to look closely and... I don't know, maybe it's because it was so dark, like, it didn't really look like her yeah. color hair, but obviously if she was, like, dirty and burned and, you know, all that other stuff, that could have changed, but in his quote-unquote dream, which we later find out is not a dream, he's laying bodies all around the Nematon, and he catches fire, and they catch fire, and the whole thing's sort of burning, and we don't really know what's going on yet. I mean, there are some theories that we can talk about later, but... I think it's interesting that um, he seems really hesitant to talk to Lydia about this, and I think he's really afraid. Maybe he understands that it's more than just a dream. Maybe he's afraid that it's real or that it's some sort of premonition. Maybe he's afraid to talk to her because he knows that was Lydia's body. I mean, that was the feeling that I got, was that the reason he didn't want to tell Lydia who he was carrying or, or anything was because potentially it was Lydia herself um because he seemed he seemed to close up when Lydia started pressing for like details and I don't know why he would brush over them so easily if if it didn't link maybe specifically to her I'm not too sure but that's why I kind of have this feeling that maybe it was Lydia yeah well let's hope not I mean to be completely honest, it kind of seems like she's the only one at the end of the season that might actually be okay, other than yeah. being stuck in Eichenhaus, um, which is another reason why I'm like, oh, I don't know if it was really her, but, you know, maybe her being injured is like a mid-season mid thing instead of the actual mid-season thing, but yeah. we'll find out. For right now, though... She's not in very good shape. Uh, this is coming right off of the last episode where she was hit by Tracy and she's bleeding. And Theo comes in and creates a tourniquet. And Styles shows up and he does not want to leave her. And you can tell there's a lot of emotions going on behind his eyes there. He's a little jealous. He's a little worried. He's a little, I think, awestruck and, and hesitant and doesn't really know what to do. And my question is, he's staring at Lydia and... There's definitely 
something crossing his mind there. And they kind of have a moment where she's like, yeah, I'm okay. Go after Malia, that sort of thing. Do you think Styles was like, did he forget about Malia? You know, because I would think that one of his first instincts would be to, okay, where's my girlfriend? She's not here. I need to go find her. And I'm not, like, trying to start anything, I guess, but I am curious if you think that she, if Styles was like, oh, my God, Lydia, that's all he could think about, or if he was sort of just like, oh, my God, one of my friends is hurt. I think it do? was... I think it was more, oh, my God, one of my friends is hurt because I felt it had a definite parallel to the scene at the end of season four where Derek is, for all intents and purposes, that Styles thinks he's dying and he genuinely stops and wavers and doesn't run off until Derek tells him it's okay, go. And it's Scott who's on the line in that episode as well. Arguably another very strong relationship that Styles has. You know, these guys are all friends. He cares very deeply for every single one of them. We know that when Styles when Styles's loyalty is earned, it's it's very difficult for that to waver. So I think it was just genuine fear for for her life. And feeling like maybe he was better placed with her rather than running off to find Malia. Because it was a definite, for me, it was a definite parallel to that that season four scene. Yeah, I hadn't even thought of that, but that is an excellent comparison. And I definitely see that now. And not for nothing, her injury, the the placement of it kind of close to Allison. I'm sure that they were having some flashbacks there for a minute. So I think it does make sense that he was sort of just stuck in place, didn't really know what to do kind of thing. It's kind of freezing up in fear. I mean, they've been been and are still very close friends, uh, putting aside any any feelings that Styles has had or may have may still have for her romantically, you know, they they still have a very close friendship and they care very deeply for each other that much we do know. So, you know, faced with the genuine and immediate fear that he could lose her for good, I mean, it's it's going to make you freeze up in fear, especially considering like you said, how closely it matches um, the placement of Allison's <laughs> Allison's very mortal injury that right. resulted in her death. So I don't necessarily think that he forgot about Malia, was just having difficulty prioritizing which, which was a more immediate, uh, not necessarily threat, but kind of the, the situation that most immediately needed his attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure that he was sort of stuck in place because he felt a little useless, too. I mean, Theo ran right in, had the tourniquet. Um, yeah. And, you know, Styles probably would have thought about that in a second or two. But I think the shock of seeing her did sort of freeze him, like you said. Oh, yeah. So, um, yeah, I'll go with that. I think that makes sense. But speaking of Malia, um, when they do finally catch up with her, she is adamant that she did not hurt Tracy. And they do seem to believe her, which I was really happy about. I was worried that they would be like, but wait a second, did you really do this? And I think 
Styles, at least, seemed throughout the episode until near the end very hesitant to believe that the Dread Doctors were a real thing, that Malia didn't, like, make it up or, or got confused or something. He just seemed like she kept repeating herself like she didn't think Styles believed her, um, which was unfortunate. But obviously, by the end, they do find out that, yes, this is definitely a real thing, but... I was very happy with Malia um, being so adamant that she didn't hurt Tracy and not sort of just like, well, obviously I didn't and kind of walking away. Like she really cared what everybody else thought of her and that she didn't do that. And I think that's really important for her character. Yeah, there was an almost desperation to it as well. Like she was she's trying so hard to fit in and kind of abide by the sort of pack values that Scott lays out. Like she went there, even though her immediate thing before leaving the clinic in the previous episode was to eliminate the threat. She genuinely took to heart that, that Scott wanted to save or attempt to save Tracy first before resorting to that kind of outcome. And you know, you you could tell even from the end of the last episode that she was absolutely devastated that, I mean, that choice was completely taken out of her hands as well. And you, she was she was breaking through to Tracy. She got her to realize what was going on. She looked so incredibly proud that she'd managed to do something that that wasn't outright violence. And then that was that was taken away from her and she you know obviously was probably a little bit afraid that they might not believe her mm-hmm. so that was underlying there and she just wants them i think she just wants them to believe her uh they don't all i didn't get the feeling that they all necessarily believed her story about the dread doctors either i thought they were a little bit like mm, okay like, they want to believe her, but weren't entirely sure if they should. Right, like, where's the proof type of thing. Yeah, yeah. And especially for a character like like Styles, who is very logical in the way that he thinks, and it's all evidence-based, and it's all very clues and hard facts, much like the way that he's been the detective from the first season, you know. I think for him, that would have been a very, very difficult thing to grasp and to to believe without there being any evidence of these guys being there, only Tracy and Malia. Right. So. Uh, switching gears, we see Donovan next, and he's taken to the Dread Doctors, and he's strapped down, and they start removing his teeth, ah. which was pretty disgusting. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Um, I wonder how Dylan felt about this, because he has those nightmares about his teeth falling out and everything. Uh. Uh, but Donovan turns into a Wendigo, or at least like that's one of the things that he's been crossed with. And mm. I thought that was nice. To see that back, I use nice as a general term. I mean, <laughs> the Wendigo is quite a disgusting looking uh, yeah. creature with his teeth all pointy and stuff. But um, I'm glad that it was kind of a throwback because we didn't get a Wendigo for very long prior to this. And um, I'm just sort of glad to see it back. But yeah, that was that was a pretty disgusting scene, wasn't it? Oh, totally disgusting. I mean... A plus and kudos to the writing team and whoever decided 
to go with the removal of the teeth because I was cringing. Like that whole thing, teeth falling out, teeth being pulled out and ripped out. That's I'm terrified of that. That's one of my like big fears. So whoever decided to put that in the episode, thanks. Thanks a lot for that. Needles, <laughs> I can pretty much deal with. I'm okay with that. Not too bad. The the teeth pulling thing? Ha! Not so okay with that. Like, and it was disgusting. And the fact that he had the blood smeared all over his mouth. Then yeah. <laughs> that part actually really reminded me of the Joker. I thought he looked a lot like the Joker there. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Well, moving on. Uh, we go back to Lydia. She's in the hospital now. She's getting surgery. Um, they seem pretty hopeful for everything that's going on. But as she counts back from 10, she starts hallucinating of the dread doctors. And she has not seen the doctors up until this point. And so I'm wondering, is this because she was hit by Tracy? Is this another clue as to possibly, like, whatever is going on with the people that have been abducted by the doctors, that it's sort of like the hallucinations are spreading via, you know, contact or blood or or anything like that? I don't know. I mean, that's an interesting way of looking at it. I mean, we don't necessarily know that the the canima venom itself had affected her. She was fairly immobilized from just the injury itself, but she was moving like you could see her moving her arms, her hands and stuff while she was on the floor. So I don't I don't know is the only honest answer I can give to that. My only other theory is linked to to something I brought up previously, which is if the dread doctors are existing on different planes of existence, the way that they are able to like fade in, fade out and the way that they kind of distort as they're around. If this is um like almost a subconscious activation of her banshee powers and being able to see through that veil to see them and kind of bring that forward. I I don't know. Uh, I think we need a little bit more information on them before I could get a solid theory on how she mm-hmm. saw them because there's no way of really knowing. And we know from season two that Canima Venom isn't supposed to affect Lydia so yeah and I also think it's interesting that by the end of the episode Scott Kira you know them they see the dread doctors and it's clear that those dread doctors are actually there versus when Lydia sees them she's imagining like Melissa is one of the dread doctors like it's very much a hallucination so Um, definitely something to just sort of store in the information bank and we'll go back to it once we get some more information. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Brooke (laughs) formally requests us to mention this next point because she, quote, still hasn't recovered. Shelly is telling epic stories with these tiny actions and it means so much to me, end quote. Um, actually, I'm really glad that she put this in here because I wasn't going to touch on it originally, but then thinking about it more and more, I'm like, God, this was such a good little moment. And it's when Malia removes the word desert wolf from Styles's little mystery board. And I think for me... And, you know, let me know if you thought of this in a different way. It was more like 
putting the group ahead of her own questions and realizing that, yes, I want to know who my mother is. I want to know who the desert wolf is. I want to know what she's capable of and where she is and all this other stuff. But it's not as immediately important as what's going on with her friends. And for Malia to do that, I feel is just, it's huge. She is growing so much as a person. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with that. Even for me, I feel like it was a very beautiful moment in regard to her relationship with Styles because it's very evident from the first few episodes of of this season that Styles has been the one conducting the research into the Desert Wolf. He's been the one digging stuff up, finding those images, getting as much information as possible. It's not only putting her own self-interest on the back seat, it's also taking that burden off Styles' shoulders, which the fact that she could convey that much in just something so simple as wiping that little section off the board. I just thought it was a very, very beautiful moment Mm. and uh, really great character development for Malia. Like I was seriously impressed. In fact, I've been impressed by all of the ladies this season already. And we're, we're, we're only like four episodes in and these ladies have been fantastic. Yeah, it's really exciting for the lady characters this season. But I also wanted to say, not only did Shelley do a phenomenal job, and not only did Malia's character really come through there, I think the moment, like the relationship of Malia and Styles, was huge because she wiped that off the board and they looked at each other and it was like they were giving each other permission to focus on something else. Malia said, you know, like you said perfectly, it takes that burden off of his shoulders and he was really thankful for that. But it was also sort of like, you know, we'll get back to this. But right now, let's just kind of face this thing that's really close right now and an immediate threat. And I think the fact that they could talk to each other like that by just looking at each other was really beautiful. Yeah, definitely. And I think it also lends some some kind of weight to just how terrified Malia is about the threat of the Dread Doctors, that she that she's willing to do that as well. Like she she's scared. She's scared and she knows how dangerous it is. And this is the this is the woman that faced down the berserkers and and really went for them and and this is like this sort of thing this is terrifying her like she was fully ready and and willing to run headfirst at the berserkers but it just kind of credits how terrifying and how devastated she is about what happened to Tracy that that she sees this as a more immediate thing that they need to deal with yeah and i think it makes total sense that she was so willing to fight the berserkers head on because that's brute strength. You know, they didn't have a lot of cunning. They were just basically running through walls and throwing people all which ways. And I think Malia, that's very easy for her to understand that sort of raw animal brutality. Whereas the dread doctors, they, you know, they're injecting people and they're disappearing and they're blurry. And it's, it's all very like, mysterious and she doesn't quite know how like which angle to attack them and that must be terrifying from her you know not that she's dumb or anything I don't think that at all but I I think that sort of 
that mentality that she has that's very animalistic um, is easy for her to break down, whereas something that's, you know, kind of controlled by the mind and there's a lot more cunning and intelligence to it, I think she still has trouble grasping that. It's not something that her instincts can tell her necessarily how to fight. So that it must be really scary. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. I'd agree with that quite a lot. I mean, and and to think that we get that much from that fleeting a scene. I know. It's it's just insane. Like how well that scene played and how how many things it can mean just in the nuances of of adding and taking things away from that board. Like Yeah. Uh it's so good. <laughs> it's seriously good. <laughs> You want to know what else was good this episode, surprisingly? Deaton. Deaton was kind of useful for like two minutes. We'll get to that in a second. Yeah. But (laughs) he's the one that sort of figures out what's going on here. And and later Scott kind of puts a name to it. But he says, okay, you know, here are Werewolf Claws and Canima Venom. They were in Tracy. And here were, um, what were the other two things we had? For Tracy? No, it was he brought out. I thought he brought out some other stuff. Oh gosh, I'm trying to think. Anyway, we find. Oh, it was um, it was Rave Wolf. We had the. Oh yeah, yeah. The talons. (laughs) Yeah, we had the talons and all of that. So we know that they're kind of mashing up the creatures, and Deaton's one that says, you know. They're making these creatures. That's why Tracy could cross the mountain ash. Um, And later Scott says, okay, they're making chimeras, basically. They're putting two things together, and um, it's sort of like science-based. It's not something that, you know, they're not getting bitten. They're not getting made in the way that Scott made Liam. It's more like shoving genetics into them and seeing what happens. Yeah. So we kind of have a name for what's going on now. And then, so like, I was like, wow, D, and that was like a good explanation. You had your little props. You told him what was going on. You explained this really well. And he was like, yeah, I'm leaving for a little while. Yeah, peace out. And I was like. Too real for me. (laughs) Really, Deaton? Really? (laughs) Wow. I still say he's going to be a big bad at some point. I just, I, I've still got that feeling. I've had it from season one and I still think it's going to happen because he's like, mm, I don't think I'd survive this one. I'm just going to let you guys deal with this and yes. I'll come back when it's an opportunistic moment for myself. Yeah. Let's let the children save the world. I'm just going to peace out, you know, hang out on the beach. Just let me know when you guys are done. Yeah, pretty much. That's <sighs> oh, Dayton. Okay. But happy thoughts now, because Parrish was watching over Lydia in the hospital, and I really like them, you guys. I think they're really adorable. I'm really, really, really loving this relationship a lot. Like, I just like how they are together. I really love the interactions at the start of the episode as well. Like, the really, really teasing flirting that they've got. Going but at the on. same time, going slowly and not rushing yeah. into anything. And I think for Lydia, that's huge. And especially because Parrish is a little bit older, I like the fact that they're just 
they're being very mature about the whole thing. And they also know that, look, the world's going a little nuts right now. Beacon Hills has some problems. We like each other, but maybe this isn't the right moment to sort of like test those waters. So I like that they're friends first and that they're really learning to get to know each other and trust each other. I think that's really important. I really love that as well. I also really love that Parrish was watching terrible kung fu movies. (laughs) I love foreign martial arts films so much. Same. Okay, good. (laughs) I think I might have known this, actually. Um, I love them. Yeah. A lot. It's pretty good. But it was a good segue, too, because that's where Lydia's like, I need to learn how to fight. You know, she has these powers, but they're all mental. It's not like she has the strength that Scott has or the abilities that Kira has. It's all, you know, her premonitions and it's all in her mind. She wants to learn how to fight and Parrish, who is in the army, knows how to do hand-to-hand combat. And I am so excited for this plot point. You have no idea, not only because I want to see Lydia learn how to fight, but also because I want Parrish to teach her so badly. We got a little clip of it in one of the teaser trailers, and it looks amazing. Yeah, yeah, it really, really does. I'm super excited for it. I just want to see them interacting more and dealing with each other more and doing everything. Just, ah, just give me all of it because I'm super, super, super into it right now. And, you know, we know from episode one that Lydia is going to seriously kick ass. So uh, he's going to be a good teacher. <laughs> yeah. And we did learn too, that they are, she's getting um, lessons from multiple sources. So I'm really curious if, you know, maybe she's learning like Banshee stuff from somebody else or something like that. But I'm just wondering if anybody else is going to be teaching her how to fight or if it's only going to be Parrish. Yeah, that would be quite interesting. Um, I know they go and visit um, Dr. Valak, 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 Valak at some point. Valak. <laughs> Valak. There we go. I always like mess up the pronunciation of his name for some reason. Yeah, we know that they go to visit him at some point. We've seen him in the teasers. We've seen him in like the mid season trailer. So I'm, I don't know. It could turn into, I'm obviously grasping here, almost a Hannibal Lecter, uh, Clarice kind of thing where she gets information from him Mm -hmm. possibly. I mean, he's, he's very likely the one person, uh, who's been exposed to the most supernatural creatures, especially considering where he is in that section of Eichenhaus where all the supernatural creatures are being held, um, considering uh, for the most part that Meredith was in Eichenhaus as well. And let's be real, Deaton doesn't know anything, or if he does, he's not imparting that wisdom on Lydia in order for her to be able to, to hone her powers. I mean, there's uh, at the moment there is no other source that I can think of that she's going to be able to get that information from unless now that her mother is semi in the know she potentially could put her in touch with other members of her family alongside her grandmother's side of the family so going back that way I mean that could 
that could always be another possibility. Yeah, definitely. Now, in case you didn't hate Theo enough already, we learned that he's actually working for slash with the Dread Doctors. I want to say for because I think he's, maybe he thinks he's on par with them, but I don't think he's on par with them. I definitely think that he's um, being moved around the board by the Dread Doctors. But specifically, um, I wanted to bring up when we were at San Diego Comic-Con, Jeff told us that Theo is going to be their Joffrey. Uh, which is a lot to live up to. If you're a Game of Thrones fan, you know how much people hate Joffrey. So I think it makes total sense that he's working with the Dread Doctors because, um, you know, how else could he betray them other than doing this to people? And he tells Donovan that the one way to hurt Sheriff Stolinski is by hurting someone he loves. So... That explains why he goes after Styles by the end of the episode. Yeah, A plus there, Theo. Thanks for that. Uh, I'm I'm not entirely surprised that he's working alongside the Dread Doctors. Um, I kind of fig I was getting like bad vibes from him the whole time, and you know he's very clearly got an ulterior motive. What that ulterior motive? is so far I don't know unless it is uh to get closer to Scott in order to get him somewhere closer to the Dread Doctors for them to potentially be able to I guess figure out uh the difference between a true alpha's power versus another alpha's power and maybe mutate him or find a way to extract that power in order to to implant it into someone else, maybe Theo himself or another character. Um, yeah, but otherwise I'm not entirely sure what the motive is here. I will say that I am a little surprised that Theo's working with the Dread Doctors just because I thought that this was sort of going to be like plot A and plot B, that plot A would be the Dread Doctors, they're the big bad, but plot B would be Theo and he's sort of got his own motivation for doing what he's doing but he's not necessarily tied up with the dread doctors or as bad as them he's just acting as like an antagonist versus an actual villain to come to find out that he is working very closely with them makes him even more dangerous and i'm seriously wondering and i just thought of this while you were talking was you know maybe theo was a success Maybe his condition wasn't terminal. Maybe they succeeded in combining him because we do know that he can transform into a wolf. And considering everything Derek had to go through to be able to do that, it's a little surprising that Theo can unless he was able to do that through science versus, you know, like powering up or evolving Pokemon style. Yeah, I get the feeling that he's probably one of the Dread Doctor's success stories. Um, It makes me a little bit worried about how the Dread Doctor's found the way to manipulate the werewolf DNA in order to um, in order to give Theo the ability to do the full shift when everything we've learned up until this point is that it runs it runs within like the family line. up until this point we've only ever seen a hail be able to do it and when they did uh the meeting in 3a 
yeah, in 3A, when do you, when you see the big meeting of werewolf pecs with like Deucalion and Cully and, and all of those guys, um, like when, we're explicitly told at that point that, you know, it's rare and people come from like across the United States of America in order to speak to Talia to get her advice and her wisdom because she's so well regarded because of like her pure wolf form almost that's that's the thing that we were meant to take from that and that they're able to to kind of fake it to kind of put it into another into another person without that lineage makes me a little bit concerned for how they managed to figure that out considering we've been told it's such a rare ability or Or, because also at San Diego Comic-Con, and if anybody out there has not listened to our couple, our episode about that, our live stream about that, go check it out. If you're not interested, you can just go to Hypable.com and you can read the articles that we put up about it because there's a lot of really good information. But somebody, and I'm sorry, I can't remember who, also said that... Um, they're gonna that Malia and Theo are somehow connected because we saw them in the trailer together, and I'm wondering, she's a hail. Could he be a hail? Oh man, dead hails coming back from everywhere. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it could. It's not out of the realms of possibility. Yeah, I just, I'm still a little miffed that perhaps he's able to do that where I feel like he hasn't earned it. Yeah. You know, I feel like that's something you have to earn. I mean, Derek certainly had to, but maybe he just, maybe Theo just figured out how to use it instead of really earning it. I don't know. I don't unless like he, Yeah, <laughs> unless he is a hail. And if he's a hail, the Dread Doctors were able to mess with his DNA in order to mm-hmm. make that his full shift. Like in order to bring it closer to the surface so that he can tap into it, cheating the system, essentially, which is what we know that they're trying to do with like everyone else they're experimenting on is essentially cheating the system. So, yeah, I don't know. Lots of questions there still. Oh, many questions. Mm hmm. Okay, let's talk about cinema for a second, (laughs) because I feel very betrayed. Um. First of all, I just have to say, Cinema is an excellent club name because it's spelled S-I-N-E-M-A, and I just think that's hilariously brilliant. But also, what happened to Jungle? I feel sad. I feel like a character died and nobody told me that it just happened off screen and all of a sudden, Jungle's gone. I know! I was missing Jungle as well. I I just, I want it back. Where's Jungle? Give me Jungle back. I love Jungle. <laughs> We've had so many beautiful moments at Jungle, except for, you know, that time that Jackson went crazy and almost killed everyone. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, maybe it got shut down. Maybe there were too many unexplained occurrences. They should have told us this, though. Yeah. But 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 Styles is drag queen friends and the cute bartender guy and everyone. Now I'm really sad. I forgot about the drag queens. I want them back. (laughs) Okay. 
Anyway, let's go on to something that's actually kind of relevant to the plot, which is Hayden is a waitress there, which I really don't understand because she's like 16 years old and she cannot waitress in a bar unless she's lying about something or this is super shady, which is quite possible. Um, But what do you think? Do you think there's any possibility that it could be something else? I don't know. Maybe she's old enough. I don't know. I didn't think she was old enough to be there at yeah. all. I think she's the age that she's supposed to be. I was a little bit like that going, I, I got confused. Cultural differences. I got a little bit thing like, wait, is that a thing in America? Can you can you work in, in a club <laughs> environment when you're not old enough to drink yourself? Like, is that a thing? Well, uh, here's the thing. I know that you can go into bars when you're 18, but, you know, for the most part, but you can't drink until you're 21. Mm-hmm. I don't know about working at a bar. I would imagine you'd have to be 21 because you actually have to serve the alcohol. But, yeah. you know, I honestly have no idea. But either way, I highly doubt she's 18. Oh, no, I don't think she's 18 either. I I was just very, very confused. I think it's maybe just shady the whole the whole club maybe seemed a little bit like um like that underground kind of rave sort of thing that happened um you know what season was that was that season two as well was that was season two the one with the hidden rave yeah Mm -hmm. so I think it's got that kind of vibe it's like a pop-up event in like a shady part of town and they don't and maybe they don't necessarily care they just need someone to work it or she's related to someone running the event and they're just using her as like cheap labor yeah I was gonna say because it did seem like she knew the bartender and disliked him very much um so that's definitely a possibility the point being here is that she needs to make money And we're not really sure what's going on, if it's for something specific. We don't really know anything about her family life. But um, we do see Liam being the bumbling puppy dog that he is and hopefully will forever be. And he knocks the drinks out of her hand and has like $12 to give her for them. And and she just like throws the coins back at him and he like tries to catch him. And I don't know why, but I thought that was the funniest thing the entire episode. It was so good. But... Hayden is basically me when it comes to American coins. <laughs> no, you have them. Yes. I don't want this crap. That is true. Like, after I think I saw you in Indy, I came home and I dumped out my purse that I was keeping all my change in. And I had, like, two fistfuls of change. And I'm like, I know that this is not all mine, that most of this came from Danya. And I was like, filled up my piggy bank quite a bit, though. So that yeah, was nice. Well. Danya really hates American coins yeah I really do they're all very confusing there's too many of them they're unnecessary (laughs) and they're heavy I don't want to carry that crap in my bag like I don't have time for that so I either (laughs) shove my coins at Karen or if they have a charity box or a tip jar at the till I will shove it all into the that because I'd rather it go to someone else who is going to appreciate it rather than weighing down my bag. Just, just <laughs> no coins. <laughs> Liam can have them. <laughs> yes. 
Yes. Okay, so what else was happening at this club was Mason's on the prowl big time. Um, I thought it was kind of cute, though, and that uh, Brett is bisexual, which I think um, Natalie, for instance, vibed that. I think some other people were wondering about it, too, but um, it was nice to see that, you know, just flat out, like Teen Wolf always does it, not make a big deal out of it, just show it and, and keep going. Which I thought was a really nice way of approaching it. Like, not necessarily brick-in-face, neon sign kind of above yeah. above his head. They were a little more, more subtle about it. So, you know, I I kind of like that, that they teased that just a little bit. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. That's interesting. More bisexual representation. Does that mean we can have Caitlin back? I want Caitlin back. I want Caitlin back too. Yeah. I love Caitlin. I love um, Caitlin too. Let's see. Uh, so we're kind of coming up on the end of the episode here, and it, it all kind of goes down all at once. But basically, we switch back over to the hospital, and there's this kid named Corey in the hospital, and he has a sting on his arm. And Melissa tells Scott and Kira that it's from a scorpion, but it's it's enough venom that the scorpion should have been 10 feet tall. So immediately, you're kind of like, okay. The Dread Doctors have been here. Um, I just imagine one of them with, like, a little wily Coyote sign that said, like, Dread Doctors were here or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and Scott ends up taking Corey's pain away enough that Corey can actually talk. And this really affects Scott. Like, you can tell by the color that goes into his veins. It was this weird, like greenish blackish brownish color and he was in tons of pain sucking that up um but he did help Corey be able to explain that it was lucas the one that stung him which we'll meet in a few minutes so what did you think about this whole um 10 foot tall scorpion thing I mean, I th I thought it was very, very interesting. I mean, they are they're seriously just going for it with the creatures that they're using to to create their chimeras. Like, yeah, I mean, a scorpion, ah, ten foot tall scorpion. That is a terrifying thought. <laughs> yeah, like, I, oh, I don't know, but I just. It was really interesting to see Scott struggling with taking that much pain away. I mean, it emphasizes, like, how serious it was as mm -hmm. well. Um, but it was, yeah, it was interesting to see him struggling with taking that much pain away. And it, it uh, Kira's, like, kind of thing being like, okay, stop, stop, Scott, stop, makes you wonder what the limit is. Like, how far could he push it before it did some serious damage to him? And could that be foreshadowing for for a scene going forward? That mm. I mean, we've seen Scott use this power to take pain away from people before, and he cares so deeply and so much about saving people and keeping people safe that it makes you wonder that, depending on the person that got hurt, how far would he go for them? Like, would he go as far as as Derek did? I definitely think that's a possibility just because that's the kind of person that Scott is. But I also have to wonder if there are some hidden benefits here. You know, like, 
being injected by the scorpion venom basically is what happened. I mean, it went into his veins. You know, is he going to be immune to that later on? I mean, Lucas is dead by the end of the episode, but it's possible that maybe the Dread Doctors get a hold of Scott and try to do the same thing and it doesn't work on him. I would like to see something like that. That would be quite interesting. Oh, I actually quite like the idea of that. That it makes him immune to... Ah. (laughs) See, that would be quite cool. Could you imagine how annoyed the Dread Doctors would be? (laughs) I know. They try to inject him with, like, all of this stuff and just nothing works. (laughs) End of the season. Everybody's happy. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So Mason spots Lucas and Lucas spots Mason and they go into a little corner and start making out. And by this point, we know that Lucas is the sort of scorpion chimera thing. And Brett ends up saving Mason just before Lucas starts injecting him. And um, Liam comes in and he helps and they've got sort of a battle going on. And Kira and Scott also show up at the same time. They go in through the back and they trip an alarm And Kira takes off her belt buckle, and it's like a throwing star or something like that. And she disables the alarm. And Scott says, God, I love you, and just runs off into battle. Mm. And Kira, once again, you know, goes after him. It's like, you just did it again. You just said something, and you changed everything, and you didn't even know that you did it. And I think she's kind of struggling with, like, did he mean it like that? And if he did, how do I feel? Are we at this point already? So what did you think about that small exchange? Um, I really, really liked, I like the exchange. I like that it was, for Scott, a little bit offhand. Like, he's felt it for a while, and it just slipped out in a moment where Kira was just being perfectly Kira and awesome. And yeah, it's a game changer. And yeah, maybe Kira isn't as sure of her own feelings because they've taken it so, so slowly up until this point that it may be a little bit too soon for her. I mean, they're still, they're still quite young. They're still learning a lot about each other in between all of this very serious life-threatening stuff they haven't necessarily had the chance to really learn a lot about the intricacies of each other's lives they may know little bits and pieces but maybe yeah maybe she isn't sure of as as sure of her feelings as Scott is so yeah to, it was just an interesting moment it was and I think that brings up a lot of questions not only for the characters but also for the audience to kind of play devil's advocate I would say that one we've had about six months I think it was or was it six weeks off screen yeah and you know that's given them time to talk and stuff I mean Kira was in New York for a little while and I think things got a little confusing for a bit but Um, obviously they're still very close and they still care deeply about each other. Also, all the situations they've been through, I think that sort of makes for an instant bond. And I think a lot of that has also happened between Styles and Malia. You kind of know the type of person that you're with when you've gone through these things and you you basically do battle together. So I would argue in a lot of ways that perhaps they know each other better than 
a regular couple that had been dating for as long as they have. But even so, I think Kira was confused. And not that that's a bad thing, but, you know, it's one thing to just be like, oh, I love you because you're so great and actually be like, no, I love you. Like, you know, I want to be with you for the rest of my life. I love you type of thing. Yeah. And I I honestly do not know how Scott meant that. I think that he does love her in the way that he cares deeply for her. But, you know, does he love her like he loved Allison? Can he love anybody like he loved Allison? Oh, that's such a heartbreaking question to ask. I know. I don't think. I don't necessarily think he's ever going to love anyone the way that he loved Allison. That the the one thing with your first love no matter how it ends, uh whether it's in heart-crushing tragedy the way that Scott and Allison ended or whether it's just an amicable breakup or whether you just grow apart and move away from each other that like no one is ever truly gonna touch your heart the way that your first love will you know because it's the basis on which you navigate most other relationships it's how you set this kind of uh, kind of base feeling of of how you know that maybe you like someone more than just a friend like it's your gateway into those feelings and so I don't think he's ever going to love anyone the way that he loved Allison. I don't necessarily, I I don't think that means he doesn't, it, he won't ever love Kira as deeply. I just don't think it will be in, it'll ever be in the same way. I think that's fair. Part of me wants to argue with that just because I love Kira so much and I want Scott to feel that way about her. And I would hope that maybe one day he could. But I think as of right now in this moment, I just find it very, very hard to believe that he he loves her on that same level. But regardless of that, you know, it's still we still do have the question did he mean it in the way that she potentially took it or you know is she aware that is she aware of her own feelings you know does she love him back and and I think that it's something that they're definitely going to have to discuss and I hope they do it sooner rather than later especially considering what happens next because Kira's uh Kitsune spirit is going a little crazy. It takes over her body, and luckily Scott stops her, but she she nearly kills Lucas. And um, because she said something in Japanese, I'm going to pass it over to you because you know a heck of a lot more about that than I do. So go ahead and explain. Yes, yeah, so I vaguely heard something along the lines of Watashi wa shinoshisida which um, I then started trying to look up to try and investigate. While I was looking it up, Brooke sent me a couple of links uh, where someone from uh, the Teen Wolf social media on Tumblr confirmed that that was exactly what was said, but the translation could mean very many things depending on the kanji that was used. Now, without knowing exactly what kanji was used, I can't have an accurate translation but the most likely one is uh one that is uh, that means i am the emissary of death 
I mean, death is a very uh, linchpin part of that sentence. It's 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 just trying to figure out the stuff around it because, unfortunately, with with Japanese, um, depending on how the words are written, depends on what it actually means. So one sentence, depending on the inflection and the way that it's written, could mean countless number of things. However, that is probably the one that makes the most sense and is also fairly interesting as a concept. More than just a little bit fairly interesting (laughs) to say I am the emissary of death is first of all downright terrifying, but also really interesting considering that it was her kitsune spirit saying that and to have that inside of somebody like kira who is so adorable and klutzy and and wonderful and for the most part a very happy sort of chipper kind of person um for her to just start yelling i am the emissary of death in japanese um would take would make me take a step back but luckily scott didn't and he did stop her before anything else could happen yeah, I mean there are um there are spirits in Japanese culture who are essentially gods of death. They're called shinigami and they basically are like they are essentially gods or supernatural kind of spirits who guide or invite people towards their death. So, I mean it could be something along the lines of of this kitsune spirit seeing themselves as sort of a shinigami, but I think it would be interesting to see if that theme and motif continues to appear as we start to see the manifestation of this spirit over Kira as we go through the rest of this season, because I think the threat is, isn't ever going to get any less as the Dread Doctors continue to, to pop up chimeras like daisies. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> literally considering that they bury them. Yeah. Um, yeah. speaking of the dread doctors, uh, we see Lucas go back to normal as Scott stops Kira from hurting him, but the doctors end up killing him. And Scott's like, why did you do that? Um, because of course you ask, like, it was just, yeah. I thought it was kind of funny in the moment, but he, he did want to know why. And the drug doctor said his condition was terminal and that he was a failure. So I, I'm wondering if it's like, because obviously it took, he became this scorpion chimera. So, you know, it, it worked in that sense, but, I don't think that they could control him just like they couldn't control Tracy. And perhaps that's why they're considered a failure. I mean, I think that's the implication. I definitely think that's the implication is that um, obviously assuming that Theo is another one of the chimera and he is working so closely with them, even after he is potentially come, come back to himself in terms of being fully aware of, of his life and, his actions and his movements, you know, whereas with, with Tracy, she wasn't fully aware of what she was doing, you know, when they kind of go out of control and out of the control of the dread doctors themselves, you know, I think that's when they're deemed a failure. If, um, if Scott or any of the others are able to give their free will back to them, I think uh, they would much rather put them like eliminate them rather than allow 
those abilities that they have essentially given to these people to be used against them. Yeah, and, you know, maybe Theo is the one that is a success because they can control him, which would explain a lot of different things. But um, we also got another clue about the Dread Doctors, which is that Malia went into Tracy's room and sees a book titled The Dread Doctors, and it's got a note on it. And the note says, here's the book you asked for. And then it says, cheesy stuff, but still a fun, scary read. We have no idea you know, where the note came from, who gave her the book, or why she was asking for the book. But the fact that, you know, the Dread Doctors, in their same costumes, are on the front of this book, makes me wonder if there's some sort of, like, manifestation of the mind. You know, could they not really exist? Did they come to life, like, you know, some sort of, page master thing i don't know nice reference thank you i very much like i love page master yeah so do i um i mean that's entirely possible we know that they're very closely linked to theo so it could be that potentially theo is actually in control of them rather than the other way around maybe um you know, almost like the Canama and the Canama Master. Um, I don't know. It would be very, very interesting to learn a little bit more about how they actually exist, what they're doing, how they came to be, and potentially how long they've been around, because it depends on how old that book is, whether these Dread Doctors have met, like, like, made themselves in the image of what was in this book taken something that was maybe a little cheesier a little bit more fun in terms of fiction and just manifested themselves as like a nightmarish version of it or whether someone has read that book previously and like you said done a page master and and used their fears in order to kind of bring them to life that would be quite interesting if that's what they've done. It would also be terrifying, but yes. Very terrifying. <laughs> okay. Um, let's see. We've also got uh, Parrish stealing Lucas's body after it's already gone into the morgue. And, you know, I want to bring this up. I didn't write this down, but really quickly, throughout the episode, we get Sheriff Stalinsky very much towing that line and being afraid to step over the line between okay let's get rid of this body because it literally has like spikes coming out of it versus um you know no we have to do the right thing here this is a crime scene we need to call the authorities yeah. in is sort of like dude i've done this a lot like you should probably listen to me as deaton usually does um but you know they did put Lucas's body into the morgue and they said well we'll figure out something they'll find a way to explain it away which I think is fair I think that's a theme in a lot of um fantasy stories especially like I always think of Buffy you know Buffy the people in Buffy always find some sort of way to rationalize what they see and I think Beacon Hills could uh, act the the same way. But the point here is that Parrish steals Lucas's body and takes it to the Nematon, and at this point we know that his dreams are not just dreams, that they're real. 
Yeah, I mean, it's very, very interesting that he's taking these bodies to the Nematon. I mean, um, it's a very sacred, very holy place when it comes to druids in terms of spirituality and and power, um, regardless of it being cut down. Um, I mean, the area we know is still very much steeped in in the supernatural. So it's a very interesting place for Parrish to to take the body in the first place. Also, the 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 kind of theme of of fire engulfing like bodies like that is seen both in terms of um, funeral pyres, like mm. in like Viking like Viking mythology and and that sort of stuff. You know, that's something that they they did as a very traditional way. It's even in in terms of cremation, the way that that we do it is another way of, of being able to get rid of bodies. It's get rid of bodies. I don't didn't mean it that bluntly. In in <laughs> in terms of like moving to the beyond, I guess, or whatever is there. You know, it's a very very strong theme in our history and our culture, depending on where you're from. Um, so it's a very very interesting thing that Parrish is taking these bodies to such a spiritual place. And then essentially setting them on fire. Do it, it kind of raises some interesting questions in terms of who Parrish actually is. Is this his way of, I guess, getting rid of the evidence or moving them to the next stage of of their life, like moving them on to to the beyond, whatever? Or is this? Um, is this a manifestation of his powers? Like there's a theory that he's a Phoenix that's still mm-hmm. going around. And a very, very strong theme in Phoenixes is rebirth through fire. So is he taking these bodies of these, these children essentially who have been kind of violated and changed against their will and, is he moving them on to a different life? Like, is he giving them a rebirth? Initially, that's definitely what I thought. I think we can pretty much agree that whatever Parrish is doing, he's not aware he's doing it, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, so I definitely think it's a manifestation of his power in terms of, like, he's not consciously trying to get rid of the evidence to, like, save Stolinsky or Scott or any of those. I think it's definitely part of whatever creature he is. Initially, I was like, okay, so maybe he'll, you know, put these people down on the Nematon, light them on fire, and they'll be reborn maybe back into who they were. Although that sort of causes a whole lot of problems, too, because it's like, well, this person died. Well, now they're alive again. We still have tons of questions. We definitely saw the spikes on Lucas's arms. What's going on? I don't Um, know. Jackson got away with it. Jackson got away with a lot of stuff. (laughs) But I also really like the idea of him helping them to sort of move on to the next place, almost like some sort of angel. I think that... That's really interesting. I mean, to be completely honest, I don't know a lot about, you know, the religious side of that in terms of, like, how fire could play into that or anything. I mean, I I don't 
know if they would really all of a sudden be like, yes, let's bring in angels to Teen Wolf. Um, it just doesn't really fit the usual theme. But yeah. I do like the idea of him being some sort of savior, maybe like a spiritual savior since the kids are dead at this point. But yeah. um, I think that's a definitely a different way to look at it. Yeah, I mean, those were the two themes and motifs that, that kind of s- struck me in regard to, like, the specific location it was taking place in. And, I mean, obviously, we, we're we going to learn what parishes in this part of the season. We know that. They've, they've, they've said that in interviews, and they've said that. Mm-hmm. It um, cannot come soon enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it, if only because I feel like we've got all the clues there, they're right in front of us. It's just waiting for that final little piece to make everything click into place. Mm-hmm. Okay. Final part of the episode and possibly the most terrifying because it has to do with styles getting hurt. Um, and that are, always sets my heart pounding, but Donovan sneaks up behind him and he has a hand that has teeth uh, and he clamps down on Stiles' shoulder, and uh, the teeth bite him, and Stiles screams out. And then the episode ends, because of course it ends there. And uh, we did find out from, like, sort of a behind-the-scenes thing on the After After show that Donovan, this is a quote from Eric Porn, who is uh, the key makeup artist, and it says, Donovan has been crossed with a lamprey. He's So he's got this disgusting mouth that goes into his hand so he can reach and grab people and kind of suck the life out of them. Which is terrifying. And also, if you don't know what lamprey is, look it up. But oh, be warned because look it, up. <laughs> it freaking looks like a monster of the deep that could just... Ew, there's... What is this? I just saw one. It's like in somebody's foot. Okay, I'm closing out of this. It's really disgusting. I'm sorry. Don't look it up, guys. Don't look it up. It's really (laughs) gross. Um, I was like total random aside, but um, did you hear about the thing that happened to Jimmy Fallon and his hand? No, I didn't. Oh, well, he slipped and fell, and he had this thing called, it's called ring avulsion, okay? And basically, it's when you fall, and your ring (laughs) takes your finger off your hand. What? Yeah, and he almost lost his finger, and there's very, very high chances that when you have ring avulsion, you actually lose your finger. And he was talking about it on the show, explaining what happened, and his finger is saved, but, like, he won't have feeling in it for, like, eight weeks or whatever, and he's got this big thing on his hand. You'll see it in all the interviews he's doing now. And they were like, guys, do not look this up. It's really disgusting. Trust me, don't. Guess who looked it up? Me. I regretted that. It's disgusting. So trust me when I say don't look up lampreys. Okay. So point being, oh my God, Styles is in trouble. What do we do now? Cry. <laughs> okay. I can do that. I think I have already done that. Yeah. Um, it's This is going to be really interesting going forward just because you know, we have questions about what happened to Lydia after Tracy attacked her, and we've seen Styles in future episodes where his hands are bloody, and, you know, is this going to turn him into something? Is, you know, if this, like, sucks his life out of him, 
I don't know. There's tons of questions, and I don't really know where to start, so I kind of wish it was Monday already. Yeah, my worry is, um, obviously, we're seeing Styles unravel this season, almost like mm-hmm. the trauma from... I've said this, I said this, I can't remember if it was the last episode or the episode before, where it feels a lot like Styles' Stiles's trauma from what happened to him with the Nogitsunes is starting to manifest itself now in a delayed way because he doesn't have anything particularly to focus on in order to to kind of distract himself from that um I can't remember if it was you or or Natalie who said that it was almost as though bringing Malia back into society and teaching her how things are done and kind of focusing all of his energies there managed to stay his trauma a little bit and he was able to ignore it in favor of of kind of focusing on her instead and now it's coming out so I don't know if if the bloody hens that we see because there was a very very small promo I can't remember where I saw it well like um it was kind of like what his styles done and it had like loads of flashes to his hands on on the wheel of the jeep with with the blood all over them you know and it's kind of interesting to know when he's alone when Scott isn't there to temper his darker side his darker instincts how far would he go would he go so far as to eliminate an immediate threat without without trying to save them first Mm. again Mm. that Hawkeye (laughs) Captain America thing Captain America isn't here. Oh, boy. Oh, man. I really don't know how I feel about that. I guess I'll um, have to to look at the circumstances because on the one hand, like, that's very disappointing, especially considering all the, the good that Scott does, sometimes to his own detriment. But on the other hand, you know, Styles is a survivor, just like Malia is. And I feel like... If he's worried about, you know, my life or this other guy's life, he's going to do what it takes to to live. So yeah. it's a tough I mean, situation. We know from the next episode that basically everything kicks off in like a, a big way. It kind of starts escalating very, very quickly. Um, we also know that there's going to be some kind of bump in the road for Scott and Styles's relationship their friendship so I wonder if it's Styles potentially killing Donovan in a brutal way in order to save himself that kind of puts them on that path oh man I suddenly do not want it to be Monday (laughs) (laughs) you're welcome oh boy well on that horribly depressing note let's go into some feedback really quick before we wrap this up. Um, both of these come from our Tumblr, which is noneotherteamwolfpodcast.com. Um, please feel free to ask us questions. We love answering them. Or I should say, <laughs> Brooke answers a lot of them. Let's be real. She yes. does all these amazing roundups on the actual Tumblr. Sometimes she graciously passes them on to us, um, which we do like answering. But yes, thank you, Brooke, for all the questions you answer. You're amazing and we love you. 
Yes, we do. Okay. First one is from Anonymous, and they say, do you think Lydia would have ever forgiven Scott if Tracy had killed her mom? I immediately say yes, because I feel like even though Lydia could potentially look at it like, well, if you had just killed her when she was there, you know, none of this would happen. But I also think Lydia is very aware of Scott's morals, and I think she shares in those ideas a lot. And I honestly don't think she would blame Scott. You know, I, I don't really see it as being his fault because all he wanted to do was save another human being. And we do know that Lydia is well aware of the fact that this was not Tracy, that this was not anything in her control and that the real people to blame are the dread doctors. I completely agree. I mean, there's not a lot that Scott could have done to influence the situation at the station either way because he was stuck at mm. um at the clinic so in terms of directly having some kind of involvement or sway in in protecting people at the station i don't think that that was in scott's power necessarily they didn't know what they were dealing with at the point where they got tracy to the clinic there was no there was no way for them to figure out what was going on with her. They had no basis for comparison at all. So understanding what they would need to do in order to contain that threat, you know, they did everything that they possibly thought that they needed to do, including the mountain ash across the threshold. They had no idea that that wouldn't contain her in the clinic. Um, exactly. As far as as far as they knew, she was a a traditionally born or made supernatural creature. They didn't think that there was science and and everything at play here with the dread doctors. They didn't have that information at hand, either Scott or Lydia. So I don't think that she would have blamed Scott at all if that had been the outcome. Um, it would have been a tragedy, yes. It, Scott probably would have been more likely to blame himself than Lydia would have been to blame Scott. Yeah, and they had no idea that Lydia's mother was there anyway. I mean, nobody was aware that yeah. she and Sheriff were going out on a date. Um, sorry, was slightly distracted because you were talking about science and, and doing science and all of this, and I just had this like mental image of the Dread Doctors in a convertible just being like, let's do science, like the science bros thing. Oh, and God. like lost it. So if somebody wants to Photoshop that or draw that, oh, please feel free because brilliant. Okay. We apparently need some humor in this season. Yes. <laughs> Uh, last piece of feedback is also from Anonymous, and they say, Hi, there's a little thing that's bothering me from 503, and I was wondering if you could help me. Lydia as a banshee showed us in Season 2 that she was not affected by the Canima Venom. Remember when she ate the crystal in science class? So why did she seem paralyzed after Tracy's attack? I know she was hurt in the process, but she really seemed paralyzed as well. Do you guys have an explanation slash theory about that? By the way, love what you're doing here. Love from France. Um, hi, person in France. I think that's <laughs> cool that you listen to us in France. Yes. That's so exciting. Um, we kind of talked about this earlier, actually. And, uh, Danya, I think you agree with me. I don't think that 
Tracy's cannum of venom affected Lydia. I think that it was because she was hurt. She had been stabbed. I mean, her wound was pretty terrible. She couldn't move, I think, because she was so weak. We saw that she looked pale and sweaty and just, like, very, very, very injured. Um, I'm wondering if, by some chance... She was affected by the venom, if perhaps it could have been because she was made and was not actually a canima, um, which could be an answer to your question. But again, I do think that um, Lydia was not affected by the venom. Yeah, me either. Uh, the other thing in my head that I was thinking was like really, really stupid thought that the reason that she might have been um immune to uh jackson's canem of venom was because of overexposure <laughs> <laughs> in a non-serious answer there, kind really of like terrible. start with like all the stuff he's sucking up into his veins like <laughs> oh, on that note I think we should end this episode. Yes. There's just nothing better to say than that. <laughs> Overexposure. Yeah. Well, I mean, she did suck for his benefits. So. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm terrible. I shouldn't be allowed. It's gone midnight. I'm slightly jet lagged. And apparently I make very terrible jokes. <laughs> okay well thanks for hanging out with us guys um, <laughs> we've been putting out a lot of episodes lately and i know that not all of them have been super on time but comic con uh we've been really busy hopefully come next week things will be a little bit more timely and we'll start getting back into our routine i don't think um we've got any major events going on for the next couple of weeks at least i hope not I'm moving to North Carolina, but other than that, I am not doing a lot, which is actually nice because the last few weeks, even though we got to see each other a lot, have been insane. Yeah, they have. I mean, it's been a lot of traveling, a lot of delays while traveling, and then more (laughs) traveling, and and just all sorts, yeah, and just all sorts of of craziness. It's been very, very jam-packed. But yes. I've enjoyed it. It was definitely worth it. So, And we miss each other lots. We were we talking do. about that before the, the episode started. But I'm not going to get emotional. So we'll talk to you guys later. Yeah. Ah! Ah!